0: Hello, and welcome to the Radical History Podcast. Today's episode, The Limerick Soviet. In January 1919, the 100 employees of the Monaghan District Lunatic Asylum walked to their workplace. This, in and of itself, was hardly unusual. The asylum was a significant employer in the town, and the sight of a procession of these workers in their distinctive uniforms and overcoats commuting to work was a familiar one. However, this was no ordinary day. The previous year, the asylum workforce had been promised a four-shilling rise, which was never implemented. In response, they were planning something unprecedented. Instead of reporting to their usual posts, the workers seized control of the asylum, locked out the governor, barricaded the doorways, and raised the red flag over the building. The workers declared the existence of the Monaghan Lunatic Asylum Soviet, with the young trade union organiser Padre O'Donnell as its new governor, all with the full support of the inmates. Despite being immediately surrounded by 100 armed officers of the Royal Irish Constabulary, the occupiers held on for two weeks until their demand for the implementation of the previously agreed raise was agreed. It was the first self-declared Soviet to be established in Ireland during the turmoil of the Revolutionary period, but it was by no means last. In May of the following year, another Soviet was declared in the tiny limerick village of Knocklong. Here, the Cleves Creamery was occupied by its 50 or so employees, led by the radical socialists Jack Headley, John Dowling and Sean McGrath. Over the door, they hung a streamer proclaiming Knocklong Soviet Creamery. We make butter, not profits, while the red flag and Irish Republican tricolour were also raised above the building. The workers, under the leadership of Headley, continued to operate the creamery as normal, supplying milk with the Soviet label and meeting their orders without any major problems. Five days later, alarmed by these developments, Sir Thomas Cleaves conceded all of the workers' demands in relation to pay and the installation of better ventilation in the creamery. In total, over 100 Soviets were established in Ireland during this period, mostly in North Munster, but the most significant and largest of these self-described Soviets occurred in Limerick, which saw the entire city coming under the control of a strike committee for two weeks in 1919. It was a unique experiment in workers' control and a fascinating yet often overlooked chapter of the Irish Revolution. This is the story of the Limerick Soviet. The birth of the Limerick Soviet was sparked by a death, that of Robert Byrne. Byrne was an ardent Republican and an active trade unionist, the adjutant of the 2nd Limerick Brigade of the Irish Republican Army, as well as branch president of the post office clerks' union and a member of the Limerick Trades Council. The years 1918 to 1919 were a busy time to be either a trade unionist or a republican. The 1918 general election had seen the majority of Irish seats at Westminster, won by Sinn Féin, whose MPs refused to take their seats in the House of Commons, instead establishing their own legislature, Dáil Éireann, in Dublin. At the first gathering of the Dole in January 1919, the body declared the independence of Ireland to the fury of the British authorities. That same day, members of what was soon to become known as the Irish Republican Army, acting on their own initiative, captured a consignment of gelignite in Soloheadbeg, County Tipperary, guarded by two RIC officers, who died in the ambush. These two events were the spark that lit the War of Independence that would last until 1921. These years saw a guerrilla war waged by the IRA against the British authorities, as well as demonstrations, civil disobedience, and actions undertaken by the Labour movement towards the end of Irish independence. The latter was a powerful force in these years. Increased economic activity triggered by the World War alongside the introduction of compulsory arbitration during the war years, saw rapid growth among trade unions in Ireland. Of these, the most successful was the syndicalist Irish Transport and General Workers Union, which by 1920 had over 100,000 members. One month after the Head Beg ambush, Robert Byrne was caught in possession of a revolver and ammunition and sentenced to 12 months hard labour. Continuing his political activity behind bars, Byrne, a natural organiser, led a hunger strike against conditions in the prison. When his health started to deteriorate, he was transferred to the Union Hospital in Limerick City. Three members of the local IRA visited their comrade in the hospital and noticed that there were only three RIC men and one prison warden guarding their adjutant and decided to attempt the rescue. The rescue did not go well. The existing eyewitness accounts disagree on the precise details, but a firefight broke out when the IRA unit, posing as visitors, attempted to grab Byrne and abscond. In the ensuing struggle, an RIC constable was killed, and when the IRA men got Byrne to a waiting carriage, they discovered him to be seriously wounded. Already weakened from weeks on hunger strike, he died that night in a safe house a mile away from the hospital. Tensions were running high in Limerick, after a brief inquest, Burns' body was handed over to his family. When his corpse was removed from the safe house to St. John's Cathedral in Limerick City, it was accompanied by 10,000 mourners, many of them IRA members, in a military-style escort, complete with a tricolour draped over the coffin. From the perspective of the authorities, this was an act of open defiance against the British administration. While the RIC, and army, had withdrawn from the streets during the removal, it had no intentions of doing so during the funeral which occurred the following day. As Liam Cahill, author of the definitive book on the Limerick Soviet, describes, quote, The funeral was as much a city's display of defiance as an expression of sorrow. There was a strong military presence throughout the day. Armoured cars flashed through the streets, and coming up to two o'clock, sections of soldiers with fixed bayonets and police took up positions along the funeral route. Each section was supported by an armoured car and an ambulance. A military aeroplane circled above the cathedral and followed the procession for part of the way. End quote. The day before the funeral, concerned by the scale of the burn removal and the open presence of Republicans, Senior British Commander General C.J. Griffin had declared a large swathe of limerick a special military area essentially placing the city and a section of the nearby countryside under martial law. The declaration was not only unpopular, but also a massive pain in the arse. Army checkpoints were to be placed on bridges leading into the city. To get in, or out, of Limerick, civilians would have to present a pass at the checkpoints. To get this pass, they had to apply in person at General Griffin's office. Even with the pass, locals were liable to be subjected to searches at any of the checkpoints. This pissed almost everybody off, but residents of the working-class district of Thomangate, which lay on the northern side of the Shannon, just outside the special military district, were particularly peeved. Most of these workers had to travel into the city to work and would have to cross the checkpoints twice a day, if not more. Moreover, many workers in the city supplemented their diet by keeping small allotments in the city's rural hinterland, which would now be only semi-accessible. But it gets worse. Not only would the population of Limerick have to endure the special military area, but they would also have to pay for it via an increase in local rates. Everyone, especially workers, were now angry. Very, very angry. And they weren't going to take it lying down. The first workers to take action against the special military area were those of the Cleves factory. And yes, that is the same Cleves family we mentioned in relation to the Nakhlong Soviet. Despite being offered free passes, the workers instead took strike action, the first organised protest against the special military area. On Sunday, 13th of April 1919, a heated 12-hour meeting of the Limerick Trades Council took place. After much discussion, they reached a unanimous decision there would be a general strike against martial law on the banks of the Shannon. A strike committee led by the three C's, John Cronin, James Casey and James Carr, a carpenter, a printer and an engineering worker respectively, was formed. That night, unionised printers worked until the wee hours of the morning, printing notices declaring, quote, The Limerick Trades Council hereby declare cessation of all work from 5am on Monday, April 14th, 1919, as a protest against the decision of the British government in compelling them to procure permits in order to earn their bread, by order of the strike committee. The next day, almost every business in the city, even the pubs, remained closed while the strike committee maintained essential services like water, gas and electricity. Over 14,000 workers in the city were now on strike. While many in the food trade stayed out on the first Monday of the dispute, the strike committee quickly realised that there there was a danger of food shortages, so workers in the tannery, bacon and bakery trades were sent back to work to maintain a minimum availability of food. Grocers and bakers reopened, but only between 3 and 5pm. One respectable citizen was so incensed by the inconvenience of the strike that she wrote to King George, asking him to intervene personally to bring an end to the military restrictions so as to end the strike. His Highness did not respond. Already, even on the first day of the strike, the dispute was being referred to as a Soviet, likely in reference to the fact that the strike committee had taken charge of both essential services and food supplies. The latter was the most difficult aspect of the organisation of the strike, as the committee had to ensure a city of tens of thousands didn't go hungry. The Soviet kept prices and shop opening hours under strict control, with patrols of workers roaming the streets to ensure the orders of the committee were being followed. A food committee was set up to make sure supplies were sent to the city with the assistance of local farmers. Boats with muffled oars delivered food up the Shannon, and it is even claimed that coffins containing bread and potatoes made their way into the city in the hearses of sympathetic undertakers, avoiding the inspections of the soldiers at the checkpoints. Soon a new problem emerged. Money. The haste with which the Soviet was organised meant that the constituent trade unions hadn't prepared a strike fund, and after several days of strike action, some were beginning to feel the pinch. Luckily, the committee had a simple solution. They simply printed their own money, which would be accepted at shops which opened a line of credit to the Soviets. The measure, surprisingly, was effective, and allowed the minimal functioning of the local economy to continue for the duration of the strike. In fact, there were so many contributions to the strike fund that the committee, once the food bills had been paid off, were left with a surplus. Now, strikes, Soviets and guerrilla war weren't the only entertainment to be found in Ireland in 1919. There was great excitement in Limerick over the fact that the aviator JCP Woods was to attempt a transatlantic flight from an airfield at Bonn Moor, a little outside the city. This excitement was shared by the strike committee, who agreed to facilitate the Major Wood and his team admitted that they were using the airfield only at the discretion of the Soviets. Wood's team agreed, and permits were provided for drivers to convey members of the press to Bonn while they allowed fuel for the flight to be delivered. Now, as it happens, Major Wood never made it to Ireland, instead crashing somewhere off the coast of Anglesey, ending his voyage before it had even really begun. But it did mean that there was a huge media presence in Limerick, with the result that the general strike became an international news story. The American journalist Ruth Russell interviewed John Cronin, the most significant of the three C's, who was clearly confident about the progress of the strike. Quote, Yes, this is a Soviet. The kept press is killed, but we have substituted our own paper. In a few days we will engrave our own money. Besides, there will be an influx of money from England. About half the workers are affiliated to English unions and entitled to strike pay. We have, by the way, felt the sympathy of union men in the army sent to to guard us. A whole Scotch regiment had to be sent home because it was letting the workers go back and forth without passes. And, we have told no one else the national executive of the Irish Labour Party and Trade Union Congress, would change its headquarters from Dublin to Limerick. Then, if military rule isn't abrogated, a general strike of the entire country will be called. End quote. While the strike had received support from many small businesses from the outset, the larger firms in the city and environs were worried about the power of the Soviet and the disruptions being caused to their businesses. One of these wrote to the government, demanding the military area be repealed, as there was a danger that the strike could spread quote, over the whole of Ireland, north, south, east and west, and maybe even to England, Scotland and Wales, and I need not say what the result will be, end quote. Clearly, some were concerned that the strike in Limerick would spread. The Limerick Chamber of Commerce were hardly pleased with the special military area, but they were much more concerned about the control of their city now being in the hands of the organised working class. Should Private discussions with General Griffin, they reached an agreement that passes would be issued directly to workers through their employers. The concession was satisfactory for the capitalists, but the workers of Limerick rejected the overture, fearing that it would put control over the entry and exit to the city in the hands of the bosses, a prospect that was hardly more appealing than the same power being at the discretion of the army. The strikers remained resolute as the first week due to a close. By now, the special military area looked increasingly farcical. While the main thoroughfares were covered by military checkpoints, railway bridges and boat crossings were not, and many people were entering and exiting the city at will. The 20th of April 1919, Easter Sunday, a crowd of about a thousand people attended a Gaelic football match, or a hurling match, or a meeting, well, something anyway a few miles outside the city in County Clare. It actually seems unclear whether there really was an event to attend at all, or whether it was simply a calculated move to test the resolve of the military. Either way, having left the city and done something, a crowd of over a thousand people returned across the river. This time, however, they didn't sneak in the way that they had done earlier in the day. Instead, they marched in a single column directly towards the sentries on Sarsfield's bridge, demanding to be allowed passage, despite not possessing permits. At least one of the sentries panicked, firing a warning shot, which led to dozens of soldiers scrambling from their barracks to reinforce the bridge, while a nearby tank was fired up and menacingly tested its machine gun. In a scene reminiscent of one of Mahatma Gandhi's protest marches, the demonstrators kept their composure, forming a large circle. Every person walked to the sentries and asked to be admitted without their permit. When the inevitable refusal came, they walked to the back of the line and were immediately replaced by the next person. They continued doing this until the sun set, and then until midnight, and eventually morning. Several hundred years of British rule in Ireland had clearly led, nothing else, to a respect for an orderly queue. The next morning, some young women were able to pass without inspection, having softened the sentries' hearts by their, quote, charming looks and the magic of their brogue. Most of the demonstrators, whose looks and brogue were insufficiently charming or magical, were given accommodation by sympathetic families in nearby Thomangate, or attended an all-night concert organised for their entertainment. The next morning, a group of sympathetic farmers arrived with bread, milk eggs and butters, and the remaining demonstrators had a pleasant breakfast in the damp morning air. By midday of Monday, about 200 demonstrators remained. Abandoning the bridge, they marched to a rural railway station where the ticket inspector, not expecting a crowd of 200 people to board in the middle of nowhere, neglected to check their tickets, or their permits. Not long afterwards, they were boarded by military officers who demanded to see their permits. The situation turned farcical, the train was now packed, mixed between demonstrators and ordinary commuters, and the soldiers forced the train to pull into a platform, just outside the main train station in Limerick City. They blocked the gates and refused to let anyone leave without a permit. Suddenly, someone on the platform threw open the doors, and hundreds of passengers rushed out of the train and into the confusion of the busy railway station. The demonstration was a huge success. The military authorities had been utterly humiliated, and the ludicrous nature of the permit system lay bare for all to see. As the strike entered its second week, the Soviet leaders awaited the arrival of the national leadership of the trade union movement, for whom they had been waiting for some time. At this point, we need to wind the clock back to the first day of the Soviet, when the three C's sent an urgent telegram to Dublin, informing the trade union leadership that a general strike had begun. The leaders of the Irish Labour Party and Trade Union Congress confirmed their receipt of the telegram and the Congress Treasurer and future leader of the Irish Parliamentary Labour Party, Thomas Johnson, a Liverpudlian by birth, was dispatched to the city to represent Congress leadership. Meanwhile, the rest of the leaders contacted Dáil Éireann in hopes of coordinating the actions occurring in Limerick. Nothing seems to have come of this with the shadow government refusing to back escalation. Congress was thus left in an awkward position. Meanwhile, as Congress struggled to come up with a plan of action, Thomas Johnson, quickly ingratiating himself with local trade unionists in Limerick, was suggesting that the strike was to be escalated, with stoppages being planned outside of Limerick itself, in order to increase pressure on the authorities. While Connor Costick suggests that Thomas Johnson was merely trying to keep local workers happy until the strike could be de-escalated, it's actually more likely that he genuinely believed such action was forthcoming. It wasn't. The problem for Congress was that a national strike over the Limerick issue could potentially cause ructions with both Unionist workers in the North and with workers in England, given that many of the unions affiliated to Congress were British-based, with only a certain portion of their membership base in Ireland. While Congress may still have considered a broadening of the strike had they been supported by the Dáil, the latter had given them the cold shoulder. When the leadership of Congress finally arrived in Limerick on Wednesday, in the second week of the strike, they announced their plan to a presumably gobsmacked strike committee. There would be no escalation or spreading of the strike beyond Limerick. Instead, they would evacuate Limerick. The entire city, Yes, all of it. If this sounds like a stupid plan, that's because it was. The local strike leaders were not convinced by the idea that thirty to 40,000 men, women and children could be removed from the city and then fed and sheltered by the trade union movement. So they rejected the plan, which, to reiterate, was to evacuate the entire population of Limerick City. Now, with no help forthcoming from the Doll or the Congress leadership with their barmy schemes, the strike could go no further. Accordingly, there was a partial return to work on Friday, 26th of April. By the middle of the following week, the city had, more or less, returned to normal as the Limerick Soviet came to an end. In the end, the strike failed to accomplish its primary objectives. It was, however, a remarkable episode in a period in which the Irish labour movement had become a force to be reckoned with, both in terms of membership and militancy. Neither the Limerick Soviet, in reality a regional general strike, which took on some municipal functions out of necessity, nor the other workplace Soviets in Ireland, which were really workplace occupations, were really comparable to the contemporary Soviets which had been established in Russia. However, even the use of the Soviet name Combined with the widespread enthusiasm for the October Revolution among working class Irish people, is evidence of the militancy and political radicalism that reigned in that period. Even though the Irish state that emerged from the Revolution was to be conservative, clerical, and dominated by the Catholic middle classes, the Limerick Soviet and similar events showed that this was never simply inevitable and that alternative political currents really were present during the years 1919 to 1923. If you'd like to find out more about the Limerick Soviet, Liam Cahill's book Forgotten Revolution remains a definitive account and is available online, while Conor Costick's Revolution in Ireland contains much material on the other Soviets in Ireland of the time, as well as labour militancy in Ireland during the period more generally. Thanks for listening. As always, like, subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes, or whatever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at History Radical or email us radicalhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, goodbye.